Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Wyndham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Wyndham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. Starting a business can be tough and especially if it involves food. We talked to Click, an organization that is multicultural with multi-service kitchens, connecting farmers, chefs and food lovers by supporting each other. And we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. Food is all around us, and for some it's more than a passion, it's their business. But having a food business can be tough with long working hours, supply chain issues financing and if you have a brick and mortar store hoping you get enough customers coming back to keep the doors open but there are organizations out there that can help if you really want to be the next big food thing i visited click and willimantic and spoke with lee duffy executive director to find out more about this unique eastern connecticut organization that's helping food businesses learn how to flourish Lee, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. Thank you. Uh, we are, so just so the, the listeners know, we are out and about and we are at Click in Wyndham. So I'm going to ask you, first of all, what is Click? So Click is a very unique nonprofit and it is based on really understanding and recognizing that we need a very local, sustainable, healthy food network in this eastern Connecticut region in particular. We have a mission as a nonprofit, and we our mission is Grow, Cook, Share. And a lot of that is around also recognizing the historical and institutional injustices that have happened in the food system that we are also trying to address in our mission. So Click itself is a commercially licensed cooperative kitchen, and that is a component, that is our cook component of our mission, where we are a small micro-business startup kitchen, and Whether you're low income or not, we focus on helping you get in and start your own food business. And the beauty of that is most often you have like an 80% failure rate with food businesses. And you have also bought the farm in the process. So you've lost your house. You have no money left. We help you by getting funding, helping you to get started up in a very low cost way. So hopefully your business thrives. But if it does not, you have not lost a lot of money in the process. You've been doing this for quite a long time now, haven't you? I mean, this isn't a new organization, despite the fact that you call it Business Incubator. Just tell us um, how long you've been doing this as an organization. Well, actually, we opened our doors in 2015. So it's been about seven years. And because we're a small micro-business startup, you move on from here. The hope is you're not going to live here, but you're going to grow and move downtown into a space and you know, we're an economic development program, if you want to look at it that way. But we've probably helped at this point about 65 new food businesses start up in that 
six and a half year period. So the other part of our mission, though, is to teach people how to grow food and connect people to local farms and farmers. We actually started because of farmers. We, we are surrounded by some 75 farms in this region. And, uh, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, actually, when Click, we were talking as a grassroots organization about what should we do. It was farmers we were focused on. How do we keep our farmers solvent? How do we help them through creating value-added products with excess produce so it's not getting buried or fed to the pigs and it's actually generating revenue for them? That was the impetus of this organization, which we still do, but it has grown. The micro food business program has grown to um, encompass a lot more other folks who want to start food businesses in the in the area. Let's talk a little bit more about the farms, if we may, just for a moment, because like you said, 75 farms in the area, which many people would probably find quite staggering and wouldn't know. But of course, the good old northeast of Connecticut is very much that rural part of the state for that. How well are they doing? Because we often hear about, you know, our farms and our farmers, and sometimes the stories are positive, sometimes negative. So how are they doing? Well, that's a good question. And the answer I'm going to give you is, is kind of interesting. Over COVID, so I, I kind of explained our mission. It's helping a, a healthy, sustainable, just food network. Try to talk to somebody about that three years ago. And the, their eyes kind of glaze over and they're like, oh, okay, that's nice, as they trot off to Big Y or some other, some other store to buy food. COVID hits, and all of a sudden people aren't finding the products they need on the shelf. The local store, the local chain stores, we're getting phone calls at Click saying, where can I buy chicken? Where can I find meat? Where can I find certain things? And we're directing them to local farms who do this. So what's happened over the last year and a half is in Connecticut, we've seen CSAs maxing out. So people who are now, people have now learned, also having heard on the news about supply chains. What is that? These terminologies have become almost common everyday language now. And so our mission, actually, people have got it. They started to get what a local food system is. So we saw more people wanting to start their own businesses here over COVID, still do, in particular food trucks, because those work whether there's COVID happening or not. But we also saw our farmers markets across the state being utilized a lot more. We saw our farmers coming in more wanting to process more food because now people want more. Our co-ops are being used even more. So I would say all of the negative that's happened with COVID, one of the more positive things has been people's understandings of why it's important to have local food available. The other thing as well is it's nice to know where your food comes from because, of course, you know, even before COVID, many of us would just go to a supermarket, pick up a prepackaged item, be it meat or fruit or vegetables, and probably not think twice about where it came from either. Right. Or how many miles it's traveled before it's gotten to your door. And what's the nutritional impact of that? All of these things that make sense for local food are now a little bit more of what we talk about on a daily basis. Or you see people in our food co-ops now looking at labels a little bit differently. For us, it's very exciting because it is actually watching our mission be more embraced by the community than it ever has been. Also, I think it's a case of people probably realizing for maybe the first time in their lives how much is actually grown and made in Connecticut. I mean, we may not have the climate of California, so we're not growing oranges or grapefruits necessarily, right. but there's plenty of other things that the state does grow, mm-hmm. and that's probably been quite a surprise for people, I would have thought. I think it is. I think anything around food, if you've been a grocery store shopper, you've learned a lot 
And it's all been, you know, situational learning, which is always the best. Because for me to come to you and tell you about our mission and, and why it's important, okay, that you might hear it. But when you go to that store and you can't find that item, and then you find out somebody locally produces it, it's a whole nother a learning curve for folks. And so another component of that is teaching people to grow their own food. So we also got a lot of phone calls for people going, oh my God, I want to learn how to garden. I need to make my own garden. I'm not going to lie, some of that, we helped folks, and then the next year when food came back, it was like, well, that was a lot of work. I'm not doing that again. <laughs> but part of what we do is an educational component. So we want to teach folks. We have uh, classes here all through the summer, all through the year on how to grow food, all kinds of fun things like worm composting and soil development and things like that. And then also health-related nutritional classes, like what healthy food, what is food made from, what's helpful uh, to eat, and what is not. So that is our, our educational mission is to in, improve the health of the community. And we do that through teaching classes. And, and also, we look at ourselves as a food community center. If you want to come in and teach your grandma's recipe on how to make salsa or tzatziki sauce, this is your place. You come in. We help you put it together. We help you promote it. We try to get folks to come in, and we also videotape it, and then we put it out on our social media so people can enjoy it. So we do a lot of that kind of education as well as we have after-school pro programming in here for middle school age and other kinds of programming for middle school age kids as well. Just before we move on, I just want to quickly pick up on a point that you made, and it was so nice to hear it when you said it, that, you know, the food trucks are sort of like expanding because everyone loves a good food truck. And again, when we hear so many times in the media that sadly, you know, restaurants have closed down because of COVID or people have taken the opportunity to decide, okay, I'm going to retire early because this is just too much on me. It's great to see that the food scene is still very much alive, but just in a different format. It is. It's in a different way. And I think the, the industry is struggling on that on the on the shift right now which is very clear we're still seeing a lot of folks who need help who are not getting it I've gotten calls today because one of the nice things about click is you can come in the door and work here do a class we have a processing program where you can come in and help us do food processing and then we give that food back to our feeding programs and then one of our one of our 23 member kitchen members says I need some help I need somebody do you know anybody and so we kind of move them through over into an actual employment situation and that is one of the nice things about being participating in click even as a volunteer you can end up in a lot of different spaces which is very nice you have um, commercially licensed kitchens here, which is very important. They're also very expensive. So for people to have access to it, that's phenomenal. Talk to us a little bit more about that. You touched upon it earlier on in the interview, but tell us a bit more about it because I'm guessing they're clearly very well used. They are very well used. And Click's model is a little bit different. We're a cooperative kitchen. So when you come into our kitchen door and you want to start a business, you become a member and you pay a membership fee and you get certain member benefits from that. One of them is a very reduced cost for the kitchen use, for storage use, for all of those things. Some of the other benefits are we have a garden outside and we have orchard outside. And if you want us to grow something for you over the summer, we'll make that part of our education program and we'll grow for you. You have access to our fruit when it comes in over the summer and, and fall. Uh, and our hot sauce guy uses it all the time in his local 
locally produced hot sauce. You can collaboratively buy with other members, and you can also just share information. You might be working, right? We have three separate kitchen areas. You could be working right next to somebody else making something totally different or something similar. And there's a lot of shared information. There's a lot of help that goes on there. It's, it's a very non-competitive scene, and that's probably one of the things we love the best about our program. You can hear the passion in your voice. You clearly enjoy what you do. How does it make you feel when you do see somebody have, you know, either great success or some success, you know, as they pass through these doors? It's really fantastic, and I don't come from the food world. I don't at all. I come from the nonprofit sector. So when I started here, I thought, oh, this is interesting. You know, this is all about making money over in a kitchen. And it's so much more than that. It's, it really is a food community center. And when I can see somebody come through our door who's maybe been struggling and they need a place to do some volunteer work or stay or be in a healthy place, they want to come work in our garden for a little while. And the end result of that is they end up with some employment because they just hung out here long enough and helped us out. I feel great about that. I think it's fantastic. And then the other exciting thing is worth partying is when we have a member who moves on and moves out to their own space, a bigger, larger business venture for them. Hope that they remember their beginnings at Click, do they? And do they come back every now and again and maybe help out? I mean, what's the situation there? They do remember. Of course they remember because they're all good people for one thing. And when they leave, it's on a positive note. It's uh, We have a, a Canberra Farms that moved downtown into this beautiful little spot where they it's like a coffee space where they have their bakery and everything. And we also ask them for help as time goes on. We're writing grants. We need testimonials. We need somebody to interview one of our folks. They're very generous with their time. And, and they sort of stay part of us forever. Now, you talked, uh, obviously, about the educational aspect as well, many educational aspects of Click, sort of food or cookery sort of like sessions that sort of like look at food from all around the world. Tell us about that, because that's great, because if you don't have the money to travel, and, and not all of us do, to be able to taste food from a different part of the world is a great thing to try out, isn't it? It's a fabulous thing. It's a, I agree with you. I love the way that you put that. If you can't get out and you can't travel, you can at least meet some folks and, and have have a discussion and, and feel like you're you're experiencing something from another culture. We have always done that because some of our food members, we have a Middle Eastern baker, we have a, a Mexican bake, uh, caterer, we have a, a variety of folks who we've always asked to come over and do some education. Part of our social justice program this year has been something we call Just Food Program, which is taking some sessions that are conversation and discussion around sort of racism in the food industry for folks who have no clue how that has worked out historically and today, having some conversations around that. And then in the next couple of weeks, we have what we call a, a cultural cooking class. It's a different approach to the same thing. And we'll bring in somebody from that particular culture and ask them to talk about the food and make some of the things they'd like to that are particularly relevant to their culture or the history. That's just what we do all the time. Because as I said, you could come in and do a cooking class if you'd like yourself. But we have focused on particular ethnicities this time around because we had to do some planning around that. And this, the, the Just Foods program, both the cultural cooking class and the discussion, 
we were able to get some funding from the Connecticut Humanities to be able to do this and also pay our chefs a little bit so that when they come in and, and give us the value of their wisdom, they get a little bit something back for it. And I take it that's just, you know, people, members of the public, they can look at the, the Click website and if they're interested in one of the cultural food evenings, they can come to that. Is, is there like yes. a charge for it? Or? No charge whatsoever. And you can enjoy it online if you're not somebody really ready to come out. But if you do come in, you get an opportunity to play with the food a little bit and taste it, which is clearly the best part. Well, it's been absolutely great talking to you, and it is an amazing organization. And uh, I would, as, as I think you said, it's, it's probably unique in what it does, certainly here in eastern Connecticut. And it's so great that, one, that you are here, and also the amazing organizations that obviously have flourished uh, because of mm-hmm. that. Um, so we wish you continued success, and thank you for allowing us to come and learn a little bit more about Click, Lee Duffy, Executive Director. Thank you. During my visit to Click, they had one of their Just Food series, Cooking Across Cultures events, happening, and it just happened to be British food that night. So I sat down as part of a small group in person at the Click Kitchens and with others watching the live stream to see what would be cooked up. My name is Hedley Freak. Welcome to the Cooking Across Cultures for this evening, which is going to focus on British food. And so this is the second of a series of six cooking classes that we're doing at Click that are focused on the food cultures of people that are found in the, in the Wyndham community. And really the, the, the reason why we're having this is because we think we can learn a lot about people, about cultures, about differences, about similarities, about what makes cultures great by exploring their food. We're doing it in parallel with another group of classes called Just Food, which is um, more lecture discussion classes that are looking more theoretically at issues around food and culture, food and systemic racism, so that we can learn more about how the food system plays a role in, in those larger social forces in this country. But today what our focus is going to be on is British food. When I think about British food, what I thought about the iconic British food is, I think, the classic Sunday lunch. We're not cooking meat today. So what we're really doing is going to cook the things that might go along with the meat and the pudding. And when I say pudding, of course, I mean British pudding, which has nothing to do with that vanilla stuff you might buy in the supermarket. We're going to make apple crumble and, and we're going to make custard. So, Hedley, we've just gone through a British cooking couple of hours. Yes. How do you, how do you feel it went? How do I think it went? I think it went well. It seemed like people were engaged. I liked the fact that people would come up and they would actually, they, didn't, they weren't afraid to mix the crumble. They weren't afraid to peel the vegetables. And so it was good that they were up here doing things. We ate all the food. There was good dialogue backwards and forwards. People asked interesting questions. So I think it went very well. What do you think people get out of this? I mean, you've done obviously the British one. This is part of a series of things that you do here at Click. What do you feel people walk away with? Or what do you hope they walk away with? Well, a a broader vision of the world. So earlier on, we were talking about, I can't remember who said it, it might have been you, it might have been Lee, we were talking about, you know, the the idea that British food is really boring and it's flavorless, it's awful. And so, 
at the minimum, people enjoyed what they ate here this evening. So they have this larger picture of British food. That might translate to a larger picture of British people, of British culture. Britain is unusual. You know, if you look at all the countries that we have represented in this cultural cooking series, you know, British was a, the, the dominant empire society a hundred years ago. Our culture is well known, exported around the world. And in the context of the United States, I think that people actually have a positive view of England. Just think about the way we speak. People like the way we speak. If people coming from another part of the world speaking English, they're not thought of as well. So we're, we're sort of already at the top of that cultural pyramid. I don't want a cultural pyramid. I want you know, the idea of this series that we learn about all different parts of the world and get to appreciate all different parts of the world. So that in this particular case, we don't have we have a negative stereotype of food, but not necessarily a negative stereotype of people in this country that we're, we're trying to go against. But really just greater understanding of the world and how it works. And, and you know, that we're all one big family, actually. And if you want to find out more about Click, from their kitchen facilities to the events they hold on a regular basis, head over to their website at clickwillamantic.com. To some, the sound of a baby babbling doesn't mean much, but that's not true. They're testing out vowels and consonants and trying different sounds. And by 12 months, their babbling is beginning to take on meaning, especially if there's no babbling at all. Little to no babbling by 12 months or later is just one of the possible signs of autism in children. Learn more at AutismSpeaks.org. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Green Valley Tree LLC is proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week. Contact Green Valley Tree LLC for all your tree removal and plant health care needs and more. Find us at GreenValleyTreeWorks.com or call 860-234-4041. Time now for a look at some of the other stories making the headlines in the region. Connecticut's two tribal police forces could soon be able to issue temporary pistol permits if a new House bill is passed. Republican State Representative Greg Howard is one of the sponsors of House Bill 5177 and is also the ranking member for his party of the Joint Public Safety and Security Committee. He says it's all about recognising the sovereignty of both tribal nations and the professionalism of their police departments. Knowing that both police departments meet the same qualifications, the chiefs who ultimately sign those temporary permits, you'll meet the same qualifications that the Ledger Chief does or the Stonington Chief or the Groton Chief or the Norwich Chief. I think it's just a, a loophole in the legislation when those police departments are organized in accordance with post that the wording in the legislation never caught up to facilitate that. The bill has already had a public hearing and has recently been filed with the Legislative Commissioner's Office and has bipartisan support. If agreed, it could pass during the 2022 legislative session that ends in early May. 
The future of Deer Lake, a scout reservation in Killingworth, is causing controversy with local organisations and the town after the Connecticut Yankee Council, part of the Boy Scouts movement, has decided to sell it. Mark Krause is the scout executive and CEO of the Yankee Council and says dwindling membership from a former high of over 20,000 scouts and a merger of several scout organisations over the last two decades is forcing them to assess the needs of the organisation now. The membership had dipped down to 55 500 youth, but they still owned all five camps. And so one of the things I did when I first got here was to ask our property committee to do an in-depth study of all of our properties in regards to usage, uh, in relationship to our membership, in relationship to financial viability. The council has accepted a bid from a private developer for the 255-acre site and has given other interested parties until March 31st to make a higher bid. Nancy Gorski is the first selectman of the town of Killingworth and says despite the town and partners putting forward a bid for the site, she's disappointed the council are selling the land and the price they're asking for. The Boy Scouts are looking for the $4.6 million is too high. I do know that in speaking with the Trust for Public Land that we're looking at options to see whether or not we can have it reappraised. Is there a way that potentially we could raise the bid that we're putting together? We have to work quickly because from what I gather, we have a deadline of March 31st. In a separate matter, the council have also said they will be handing over property and assets to the Boy Scouts of America National Organization as part of the $2.7 billion national settlement of 80,000 historic abuse claims that caused Boy Scouts of America to file for Chapter 11 bankruptcy recently. Legislation in Connecticut's Committee on Aging would require nursing homes to spend at least 90% of the Medicaid funding they receive on direct patient care. Emily Scott from the Connecticut News Service has more on this story. Medicaid funding allocated through the state pays for about 74% of nursing home care in Connecticut. The bill asks nursing home managers to provide summaries of how they're using Medicaid dollars to support patients, including feeding, bathing, and administering medication. Anna Doragazi with AARP Connecticut says the goal is accountability to help understand how funds are disclosed on nursing home cost reports. And it's been really difficult for advocates and policymakers to try to parse out, are these fair prices? Is this the cost of doing business? And is all of that happening at the expense of resident care? The bill received a hearing yesterday in the House Aging Committee. Healthcare associations have expressed opposition to similar bills, saying this type of requirement discourages providers from using funds for facilities management, which could drive down the quality of care. I'm Emily Scott. In the Connecticut Examiner this week, under what circumstances should a police officer who leaves one department because of misconduct be banned from ever being hired by another? That question and a legislative bill that would expand those conditions moved closer to a debate by the General Assembly after a recent vote by its Public Safety and Security Committee to advance it. The bill toughens language in a version passed last year by broadening the situations that could lead to such a ban, including those involving discrimination and use of physical force and has been opposed by the state's largest municipal police union. The law enacted last year prohibits a police department from hiring an officer who was dismissed for malfeasance or other serious misconduct 
calling into question such person's fitness to serve as a police officer, or an officer who resigned or retired from such officer's position while under investigation for such malfeasance or other serious misconduct. Changes to that bill were proposed this year by the State Department of Emergency Services and Public Protection, which includes the state police at the recommendation of the Police Officers Standards and Training Council, which certifies officers for duty. In the day this week, the first phase of construction for the National Coast Guard Museum could begin as early as July, with demolition to begin on a portion of City Pier Plaza. Retired USCG Captain Wes Pulver, president of the National Coast Guard Museum Association, announced the news at a recent New London City Council meeting. Pulver expressed confidence in the project earning the necessary state and federal permits and said the National Coast Guard Museum Association has $81 million committed toward the $150 million fundraising goal for the project. He did not comment on the possibility of an infusion of $50 million into the project that is expected to be taken up by Congress as part of a larger spending package soon. In the Middletown Press this week, Middletown Common Councilman Anthony Mangiafico, who is also Principal of East Hartford Adult and Continuing Education, received a national award from the Coalition on Adult Basic Education. He was named the National Administrator of the Year and will be presented with the award at the COABE conference in April in Seattle. Only one leader from across the country is selected for this prestigious award, which also includes a cash prize of $10,000. And in the Chronicle this week, a new scholarship program created by a local anti-drug group and city police will give local youth an opportunity to develop their leadership skills. It was established by Wyndham Pride, partnership to reduce the influence of drugs for everyone, and the Willimantic Police Department. The program is funded by a 100,000 two-year grant through the State Department of Economic and Community Development Office of Arts. Scholarships totaling $2,000 each will be awarded to qualified students pursuing higher education in the 2022 academic year and those currently enrolled in higher education. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at Connecticut-East.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East this week. And you can listen to the show again on our social platforms on demand and by asking your smart speaker to play Connecticut East this week podcast. And please like, follow and share on your social media too. I'm Brian Scott Smith. Thank you for listening.